had been working on it until the recession hit in 08, late 07, early 08, and then it was kind of put on ice. So my involvement in that um, was kind of shelved at that point. And then entirely separately, um, in 2010, uh, I got called from Joe Goldberg, who's the lead member for finance and sustainability, which is quite an unusual combination uh, in a local authority portfolio. Um, so Harringay councillor. Um, and uh, initially, he was talking about me chairing something called the 4020 Commission, which was an idea I think he'd had um, to get a group of people together to work out how to reduce the amount of CO2 that Haringey was producing uh, by 40% by 2020. Um, pretty challenging target. Um, I did. I couldn't do. I couldn't chair it, but I agreed to chair um, a subgroup within the commission, uh, which was tasked with linking. Uh, the commission activities, the, the how to reduce carbon stuff with the regeneration of Tottenham. Um, and then events kind of intervened. So uh, on August the 4th, 2011, uh, the police shot Mark Duggan um, at the entrance of our site at Hill Wolf. And that set off uh, a sequence of events um, which we'll come back to, um, but which I'm sure you're all familiar with. I'm not, I don't, don't tend to talk much about the riots, I'll touch on it briefly, but um, I'm more interested in the post-riots response today. But if we want to talk riots, we can do that as well. Um, the 4020 Commission uh, was kind of put on ice for a few months as everyone's attention turned to what do we do about the riots and about uh, after the riots. Um, but a few months later uh, we got going again uh, and we had to slightly kind of redesign the process. So when Joe had originally asked me to chair this subgroup there was really no other regeneration focused activity on Tottenham going on by anyone anywhere. Uh, so this was his effort, this his attempt to try and find a way of energising uh, the regeneration activity uh, in Tottenham. Um, and we had a conversation about what to do because by this stage uh, a regeneration task force had been set up by, well, at the behest of the mayor, and I'll come back to that again. Um, and I was, I was kind of clear that I didn't want to do anything that was in any way second-guessing what the task force was going to do. The task force was clearly there to work out a strategy for the regeneration of Tottenham, and so it was, it was being silly for uh, a separate group who have been doing the same same kind of thing. So we decided that the 4020 Commission subgroup should be very limited in its scope and it should purely try and make helpful suggestions to the task force about how the 4020 strategy could link in a positive way with the regeneration strategy. 
that the task force is coming up with. So what we decided to do within the subgroup was we um, we designed a kind of select committee style process where we uh, invited witnesses in from different sectors to give their views on how you can link action to try and drive lower carbon with urban regeneration. Um, and it was, we did select, so it wasn't kind of open to all comers, but we tried to get around the various sectors, um, we tried to get people from community groups, from local businesses, um, from education, from housing, uh, and we, we actually, we talked to a um, probably an extremely unrepresentative, but nevertheless very, very interesting group of people. Uh, and not only did we talk to them, but we listened to them and we shaped our recommendations around what we were being told, um, probably driven more by that than by any of the other, of the other evidence base that, that we came up with. Uh, and the key conclusion from the subgroup, uh, and as it turned out, the key conclusion from for the uh, 4020 Commission overall was that all the activity that was part of the strategy really needed to be community-led. Um, we were talking about uh, very large behaviour change issues, um, borough-wide, probably in reality country-wide behaviour change, in order to make a significant dent in that 40% carbon reduction by 2020. Uh, and it seemed to all of us on the Commission that the only way we were going to get there uh, was if the community, community groups of all different kinds um, were motivated and were leading uh, this charge. Anyone here from the Council, Haringey Council? Um, I'll be rude, you won't mind, will you? Well, I don't qualify that. I'm employed by the council, but I work for Sovereign. Okay. So I find that That's probably good. <laughs> <laughs> Different interests. Um, I, th I think it's uh, fair to say, I, sh I, sh I should have, I, sh I will keep caveating as we go through that this is purely my perspective, and if you ask anybody else, they will have a completely different perspective. Um, but I think the people we talked to felt that. Uh, the council was more part of the problem and less part of the solution. Uh, and so it was quite a difficult message for the council uh, to say to them, uh, you guys kind of need to back off a bit and create space for community groups to take leadership. And it'll be messy and it might take a bit longer, but uh, our, our feeling was that in the end you get, get further um, by that approach. So the energisation of the community was about enabling individual community groups, all of whom have kind of different constituencies and different objectives and different interests, um, enabling them to pursue their interests in a way which would build capacity to uh, allow the 4020 objectives to be uh, pursued as well. So that was things like relatively small amounts of money, um, paid workers, uh, using public sector buildings, making them available out of hours. Um, we had an interesting battle over how much, um, and there was you know, 
kind of debates around round numbers like one million a year and ten million a year and so on. Um, but we got the uh, we got the principles accepted. Um, but probably we didn't. I think it's probably fair to say we didn't change the culture in the council uh, to uh, make them community led. Well, I'm using. Um, I'm trying to use plurals, and if I've if I've gone singular, I apologise. Um, but there are. Uh, I don't think anyone knows how many community groups there are in Tottenham. Um, a very large number. We were talking both to individual community groups, particularly ones that had uh, a sustainability, uh, particular sustainability dimension. But we were also talking to people like London citizens, um, who, although they were, their organising in Tottenham is relatively recent compared with other parts of London. Um, had a number of schools and churches, and in fact, different faith groups um, as members. So I'm talking about any place where citizens, local citizens, uh, come together in some kind of organised way, uh, and there's there's a huge number. There, there were also there were business groups on the high road. And, you know, there's, there's there's quite a, a range of, of these community groups, some of whom are. Um, represented uh, here today, um, and the conclusions, the, con the principal conclusion was: get out of the way, let the community lead. Um, the secondary conclusions were, in terms of what could be led on, um, you know, you might a community group might start, for example, by with local food growing, or um, reclaiming streets from traffic. Uh, things which were perhaps not core to the urgency of the carbon reduction, but which were very much uh, aligned to it. Um, and the core kind of carbon-related ones were green jobs. There's actually a number of firms in the, in the Lee Valley today, Lee Valley having a, a, quite a manufacturing heritage, there are a number of, for example, green manufacturers uh, in the area. Um, so there was there were a series of recommendations around building up those firms and recruiting locally. Uh, there was a big emphasis on uh, retrofit of housing um, in two ways: uh, retrofitting the existing public housing stock, which in Harringay is primarily in Tottenham. Um, and that was a that was a big ticket item. That was kind of a quarter of billion pounds worth. Um, but also retrofitting the uh, private sector stock uh, in the wealthy western side of the borough um, through mechanisms like Green Deal and linking that activity to local firms and um, local building firms particularly uh, and to the local community. Uh, via <coughs> procurement of those local firms being dependent on local recruitment and through uh, the local FE college training people that those local firms could take on. So the kind of network by which we felt we could create a reasonable number, probably a thousand in, in a fairly short period of time, jobs, um, the vast majority of which would, would go to local people. So that was 
that was my involvement, and, and that's, <coughs> that's kind of what's both coloured my perspective and given me some, uh, at least put me in the position of an observer of what else was going on in Tottenham. Um, I know most of you know Tottenham, but for those that don't, it's probably worth uh, a bit of background. Um, North East London, half of the borough of Haringey, which is a, a very uh, kind of divided east-west borough, wealthy people in the west, um, poor people in Tottenham in the east. Uh, there's about 120,000 people in Tottenham, depending where you draw the boundaries. About 80% of those people live in wards, which are in the 20% most deprived in the UK. Uh, and some of them really uh, hitting extremes of, of deprivation uh, within both the UK and within London. Um, house prices for London, relatively low, and that's having all kinds of uh, secondary effects now with uh, the benefit changes. Tottenham's one of those places where uh, we took evidence on, on this where you find people sharing baths, um, not to have baths, but as beds. So you'd have two people sleeping in a bath, one on a day shift, one on a night shift. Um, you know, it's a bit like the new home, kind of living in sheds, some some really horrendous housing conditions and you can I get a feel for that if you just walk around the streets of Tottenham. But on the positive side, it's an incredibly diverse community. It's, it's arguably the most diverse community anywhere in the world. Um, estimates of 300 mother tongues uh, in that population. Uh, probably not really any one dominant uh, community. Um, Lots of, lots of different minority communities uh, all connecting or not in different ways. Uh, so some, some huge challenges. And in, in kind of property terms, I'm gonna try and stay away from, from property speak, but actually it's not very far away from you know, the powerhouse that is central London. Uh, so South Tottenham is on the, I always get this wrong, Victoria Line. Um, and uh, you know it's now um, with Stratford becoming much more accessible post Olympics. Um, Tottenham hasn't got a great regularity of service, but it's it's very close uh, by train by overground to uh, to Stratford. So it's one of those places which the property developers might regard as having potential. I'll come back to that as well. So let's um, let's talk briefly about riots. Um, you probably all know what happened uh, <coughs> once the, uh, the police had shot Mark Duggan. Um, probably it would have been fine if they'd managed to communicate adequately with his family and with the, with the community, but uh, I guess they were in damage limitation or cover up or whatever mode uh, and they, they failed to get that communication right. Um, so that brought people onto the streets, initially peacefully. Uh, it was also summer, so that made being on the streets uh, not too difficult. Um, and of course, in 2011, 
we're still suffering uh, from the recession and from an increase in unemployment uh, and inability of particularly young men to be able to get jobs. So we had all the kind of classic ingredients um, that were also present in 81 for, for riots. Um, and I don't, as I say, I don't really want to, to talk about that, but, but one of the things that I did find interesting, which might be worth just mentioning here, um, I don't know if anyone's read some of the behavioural research in relation to writing. Um, and I said there'd be no challenging theory, so this hopefully is a simple one because I can't get it. Um, but conceptually, if you regard everybody as having some degree of propensity to riot, depending on how pissed off they are and how encouraged by others they are, then the speed and the distance with which riots spread depends on the distribution of that propensity. So uh, one person might encourage another one with a slightly lower propensity who encourages another one with a slightly lower propensity. But if there's then a gap um, and the next person is down here somewhere, the riot never gets started because there's only three people and it's tough to have a riot with, with just three of you. Um, and this stuff appears to transmit by media. Uh, you know, it's, not, it's not just word of mouth, it's any form of communication. So uh, I think there's some reasonably strong theories that kind of telly and newspapers spread it in 81. Um, and this time around it was, it was kind of Twitter and Facebook and Blackberries and so on. Um, but essentially the spread of riots, it's, it's probably random how it gets started by the initial spark and it's then kind of random as to, as to how it spreads through the, through the population. Um, so let's, let's kind of park the riots and, and just talk briefly about the contrast between 81 and 2001. Just kind of looking around the rooms, how many people will remember 81, maybe a third of us. Um, so uh, I probably should, probably should kind of describe what happened then, shouldn't I? So uh, in 81, um, the riots kicked off in Brixton, basically the same kind of conditions. It was August, it was summer, it was warm, people were on the streets. Um, the police were pissing off the local community and uh, there was a spark and it kicked off and it spread around the country. So we had riots in Bristol, Birmingham, Liverpool in particular. Uh, the response to the riots, um, which we can now see a lot more clearly because we're 30 years on and the cabinet papers have been released and for those of you who are interested, a really, uh, well, I found a routine read, a really interesting read. Um, the response to the riots was led by Michael Hesseltine, uh, who at the time was uh, Minister of the Government. Um, and for those of you who've kind of seen him operate, he's uh, He's not someone who um, lacks leadership skills, is that why we're putting it? And uh, he immediately um, kind of got on his bike and went and talked to people in um, Brixton and Liverpool and so on about uh, what had caused the riots, but more importantly, what needed to be done now. Uh, and by uh, the October, he produced a cabinet paper which has now been released called uh, It Took a Riot. And for those of us involved in this regeneration world, and I kind of got into it 
in that in that era. Um, none of us have ever seen this paper because it was cabinet paper uh, <coughs> secret. So it was really interesting to uh, to see what it said. Uh, and essentially, it's um, uh, it looked for a very strong uh, central government reaction, including large amounts of funding in partnership with local, public and private sector um, and actually having uh, talked reasonably extensively with, uh, with community groups. Um, you know, he, as a government minister, he had exposed himself, uh, as it were, sorry, apologies for the phrase, to the, uh, the local communities in these places. Um, and it led to subsequently to things like urban development corporations and it, it completely transformed actually regeneration policy in the UK. Uh, in contrast with that, in 2011, uh, the riot response, if it was led by anyone, um, was led by Mayor Boris. Um, and Mayor Boris's approach was not to actually do it himself, but to and, and I'm quite a fan of Boris actually, I'll, de I'll declare that, uh, but um, so this is not in any way past political. Um, and what he did was he announced that he would appoint two private sector grandees to be his representatives in the response to the riots. Uh, and he, was, he appointed somebody called Julian Metcalf, um, who was one of the founders of pret uh, to lead in, in Croydon. I know you're all thinking, why? Um, and he appointed Stuart Lipton, a property developer, to lead in, in Tottenham. Uh, it's not clear whether Metcalf had actually been asked whether he was prepared to do this or not before he was announced, um, but it is pretty clear that he didn't do anything um, and he kind of declined to get involved right from the beginning. Uh, so that that was a kind of 50% failure rate or success rate, depending which way you look at it. But, um, but Stuart Lipton threw himself uh, into the task. Um, but an interesting contrast, government minister, private property developer was kind of the lead um, uh, in these two situations. Um, and there was a, there's a scale of government thing to that as well. So you know, we have riots around the country, but central government, uh, really didn't get involved at all in 2011, uh, whereas in 1981 they, they led everything around the country, albeit in, in partnership. There was also a, a, a real speed contrast. So central government um, was moving really quite fast, two, three months on from the riots, and there was a lot of stuff happening and money flowing and things like that. Uh, Tottenham um, to a lesser extent, Croydon. Croydon moved a little bit faster than Tottenham, but Tottenham moved kind of 12 months on before, before anything significant happened. Um, contrast in the money as well, big money from central government in 1981. Um, little bits of money mainly diverted from something called the Outer London Fund, uh, and that was because the mayor has little bits of money. If national government had chosen to respond the potential resources even in an age of austerity because it was an age of austerity in 81 too. Uh, so uh, they would be much larger if it had been central government there. In 81, 
it was characterized a lot more by partnership between the different layers of government, despite the fact that in those days, the most of the places where riots happened were uh, led by really quite left-wing, by today's standards, local authorities, um, and actually quite a right-wing, uh, by today's standards, central government. The partnership was much stronger between the sides of politics and between the layers of government than, than it was this time around, um, where if anything there was a turf war rather than uh, a partnership. Um, and the turf war continues today, we'll perhaps come back to that, but uh, the mayor wanted to be in charge, the London mayor and the local authority wanted to be in charge, um, and they still haven't quite kind of resolved that one. Um, and this time round, the analysis of, in 81, most of the analysis was done by civil servants as what's happened, why did it happen, what can we do about it? This time round, most of the analysis seems to be done by uh, kind of independent think tanks, even theatre directors, been some great plays on the riots, uh, completely different uh, type, of, type of response. But there were some similarities between 81 and, and 2011. Um, in both cases, I think the local authorities involved uh, were under-resourced for the task. They'd been under-resourced beforehand. Part of the reason why the conditions for riots existed was the local authority funding system in, in England, in this case. Don't get riots in Scotland. Um, probably too wet. Um, in England, uh, local authorities are underfunded where there's uh, significant levels of, of deprivation in their areas. Uh, and that was, that was the case in 81 and was still the case in 2011. And that uh, financial under-resourcing also applies to people under-resourcing. So local authorities find it very difficult uh, to ramp up high-quality people quickly in the absence of new funding from, from other sources. Yeah, I think, I think then most of the rest of it is kind of similarities. So uh, we got the first round of urban development corporations in 81 uh, out of the riots. Um, and phrases like don't waste a good crisis. Um, this time round, as I'll talk about in a bit, um, we've nearly got a mayoral development corporation uh, in Tottenham, um, although uh, that's in abeyance for the moment. Um, and all this, I think, was you know, entirely predictable. Um, in 2009, uh, I can remember a number of us, um, including actually the then Secretary of State uh, for, I can't remember what it was called then, so I'll, get, I'll guess at the Office of the Deputy Prime Minister, um, but Hazel Blears warned in 2009 of the potential for riots. Um, and that was off the back of an expectation of fast-growing unemployment, which, as it happened, didn't grow as fast as people were predicting, but at the time, people were predicting three and a half million, four million in the UK. Um, we got to around two and a half. Um, but it was also on the back of regeneration funding being completely cut. So whoever had won the election 
uh, in 2010 uh, was going to cut all regeneration funding. Brown had announced that, um, and it was clear that uh, the Tories were going to do the same. So a number of people, including a number of high-profile people, said this is what's likely to happen. Um, but people who then were, came into power um, either weren't listening or didn't believe. So what was the uh, what was the detail of the response in Tottenham? Well, the first thing was that the task force was set up. Um, Stuart Lipton was the joint chair of the task force with Alan Strickland, who uh, was the local authority member for regeneration. Um, and it was given a, uh, it's a really bad time for Tony to walk in through the door, but anyway. Um, it was given a, uh, an executive of kind of part-time and interim people from the local authority. Um, a number of them actually relatively, relatively junior. Uh, Arup were appointed to do some master plans. Um, I would characterise the approach, and we will grill Tony later because he'll have, he will have a different insider perspective. But the approach felt very physical, and the main kind of published output was something called the Plan for Tottenham, um, which was very much like uh, a kind of land use area action plan, setting out areas of change, areas for investment. Um, targets in it, like 10,000 new homes, almost all physical targets, very little in it about uh, unemployment, um, training, the uh, kind of social side of, of regeneration. Um, and the private sector, there was a, I think particularly from the London Mayor, there was a real kind of clean up attitude. Um, you know, what we want to do is we want to turn this place back to how it was before get rid of the eyesores that remind us that there were riots, get the private sector to use the insurance money to rebuild the Aldi or whatever it was. Um, and, uh, and actually, I suppose, aligned with that, um, there's a guy, a really great guy called Dan Thompson, who ironically is, uh, is a very left, far left anarchist. Um, but he decided on Twitter to organise uh, a literal cleanup, i.e., people bringing their own brooms um, and through social media coming together on the street at the same time uh, and cleaning up the debris, um, which was extraordinarily successful. 70,000 followers in a couple of days, and people out on the streets as soon as the riots were finished, essentially, um, literally cleaning up. Uh, and he became a, a darling in number 10. Uh, as, and they, the right, interestingly, adopted him as their own, which he found quite amusing. Um, so we got this kind of physical-led uh, response. Um, perhaps unkindly, some people have characterised it as being all those projects that people have thought of before the uh, riots but never quite got round to implementing were all kind of cobbled together in, in this process, which actually had already started before the riots. Um, so there was a process of creating a, a plan beforehand. Um, as I mentioned, some money came from the Outer London Fund and some money from the local authority, uh, but it was uh, relatively modest in relation to the scale of the problems in the area. Um, and 
kind of slightly strange things started happening. So a report was produced by something calling itself uh, the Independent Panel for Tottenham, um, which Tony was on, so no doubt he will explain exactly what happened. Um, but it, it, uh, it was conspicuous that the local authority weren't involved in the so-called independent panel. Um, it wasn't clear that anyone had actually given the independent panel terms of reference, but there was a big overlap between its membership and the membership of the task force. Um, and the independent panel, this is really what kind of triggered my response. The independent panel made a number of recommendations um, which were very property developer centric and very uh, anti-local community. They sided with the property developers on a, um, uh, a place called Ward's Corner, which a very active community group represented here had been trying to um, preserve, um, which has a lot of local businesses in it, but uh, property developer wanted to redevelop it for housing. Uh, they sided with the football club in relation to potential for knocking down listed buildings uh, on the high road, which again, there is a community group to start with, were valuable. Um, and there was virtually no reference to uh, the value of, uh, of the local community groups. And uh, I think you would struggle to find any suggestion, although I know Stuart did talk to a number of local people, but you really find it hard in the independent panel report to, uh, uh, to see where, where that was showing through. So there's kind of feeling that this, this overall process was perhaps a bit superficial, very top-down, mainly based on existing plans, and certainly pretty slow. And it felt like the independent panel report was um, particularly responding to this turf war between the different levels of government. And it came out at about the same time <coughs> that a, a truce appeared to be called between the mayor and the local authority. Um, and the truce, the base of the truce was basically um, local authority can have first go at regenerating Tottenham and if they get it wrong, we'll impose a mayoral de development corporation. I may have that completely wrong and I'm happy to be contradicted, but that's kind of what it looks like from the outside. So finally, where are we now? Well, now uh, there's a recruitment process going on for uh, a new body, which is not a mayoral development corporation. Um, but the independent panel set out their recommendations for uh, its chair and its chief exec um, and, and actually for some of its membership. Uh, and these were very much people who would be influ influential and able to bang heads together. Um, the original group of local authority officers is, uh, is rather fading away. Uh, and will be replaced by this new group when it gets going. Um, and there's a kind of proposition that uh, in about, within the next few weeks actually, um, there should be done some deal done with central government uh, which sees money flowing into the area. From the point of view of someone like me, um, what I see is uh, the local authority has started um, landowner meetings 
say once a month all the property interests in Tottenham get together and, and discuss what they're going to do with Tottenham. The, um, the bit that most interests me uh, is, my, is my last point, um, and which is somewhat ironic, I think, uh, but because of all this top-downism from the different layers of, uh, of local government, um, I think it's probably fair to say that the community is revolting. Um, so the community uh, or communities are organising themselves, or a number of the communities are organising themselves. Uh, there will be a big meeting in a month's time, April 6th. Um, there is a plan to have a march down the high road, probably the following month. And uh, this is all really in opposition to the first document which came out of the task force, which was the plan for Tottenham. Uh, and I must admit, it does kind of feel to me that if you want to regeneration area, you're probably better off having the citizens on your side rather than against you. Um, particularly if it's something that's happened because the citizens rioted uh, in the first place, which is for me the irony. Um, so I'll leave you with a question. Interested to hear your answers. What happens next? Can be exciting. Right, that's me. Tony, do you want to give? I know you've come in halfway through, but do you want to give a? That's unfair on me, but do you want to give a, a perspective from your point of view? Not particularly, it sounds a reasonable perspective. I mean, uh, let's wait and see what the questions are. <coughs> okay. Questions, points, observations. Yeah. If you were going to look at a more economics focused regeneration plan rather than a physical regeneration plan, what do you think would be the priorities? Well, I think we've, we've learned from about uh, what must be now three plus decades, four decades of uh, regeneration lessons that you need to do the physical the economic and the social all together. Because um, if you, if you, for example, miss out the physical, um, but you're really successful in getting uh, people into jobs, those people will move somewhere else as soon as they possibly can. Uh, so you've got to, you've got to turn the place around physically. It's got to be a nice place to live uh, at the same time, um, and you've got to deal with the social issues. You've got to deal with um, education in the schools. Right from the kind of short start end of things uh, all the way through. So it, it's not an either or, it's, uh, it always has to be multi dimensional and it's always complex. And that there are some kind of basic lessons that we've learned from regeneration over the last three or four decades, but they don't seem to be uh, remembered in organisations like GLA, even like Haringey, I think. The, the practice of, of that holistic regeneration seems to have died out and the knowledge seems to have gone as well. Yeah. Um, maybe you, uh, you, you talk about it in terms of independent panel review, but wasn't there another report called It Took Another Riot? That was the independent panel. That was a steward. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, 
some of that I recognise. I work for Aaron Gay, but actually I cover a sovereign patch and the world basically green, some of the Finland of Desert Aaron Gay and some of the other authorities I work for, so it's been quite interesting. Um, but just to go back to very, uh, very slightly before the riots, Aaron Gay were quite keen to develop um, an enterprise zone uh, based around Tottenham. Northumberland Park, and also there was quite a lot of talk at that time for a Merrill Development Corporation. And for those of us kind of, you know, within the community of you know, professionals and, and officers and so forth, we're, we're quite um, intrigued by that. They almost felt like the council giving up its remit to shape local affairs. So, you know, and there's a sort of anecdote when the Tottenham riots <coughs> kicked off. Two days, I think, before Croydon riots, we felt that that was actually Harringay making a really big move to have enterprise zones. Way ahead of Croydon, and that was all sort of slightly ruined, and neither got it in the end. But I mean, there's a lot of what I recognise in what you said about Harringay being quite a top-down council and the way it's been run. And I would guess, well, by profession, I don't have a lot to do with community groups. I would imagine that that easily reads into that level of its affairs. But there, but there are and have been a number of attempts by the council to say to the mayor, you know, you get more involved. And so just wonder how that squares up with what you said. Yeah, and I, I absolutely recognise what you're talking about because I can remember that conversation about Mayoral Development Corporation. Um, in, in my discussions with the members involved, um, I suppose I have the impression, and I should have said, I think, and it's, it's, I think it's worth rehearsing, that Tottenham used to be independent um, until 74, was it, Tony? 65. 65, oh. thank you. Um, and Wait, what do you mean independent? Uh, a separate local government unit. Oh, right, sure, sure. Before the GLA. We have a room full of experts. <laughs> Um, and I, I think from you know my conversations with uh, with members particularly, um, I, I kind of sensed a frustration. I don't know if that's if that's fair that they they just felt they didn't have the wherewithal to address the problem that was Tottenham, um, and I think were. I'm not sure whether they were, whether members were seeking a development corporation or whether it was more officer-led, but um, I think there was, there was an interest in outside solutions pre-riots. Well, <coughs> my take on that, and uh, I won't give my name because of it, uh, I think there are issues with, within the, the group of politicians who have consistently been in control of Arica, and I think this is quite common within most local authorities because the London boroughs are you know, kind of conglomerates that, that don't always resonate with the... Yeah. I would imagine people think they live in Tottenham, they wouldn't necessarily think they live in Harringham, for example. Yeah. The same way as people in Edmonton would think they live in Edmonton rather than Enfield and so on. Uh, but within the political group, I always get the feeling, and I only speak from a very, very distant observer, but it, it's, it's actually quite a schism. And that's sometimes why the officers feel a bit, you know, we're not getting consistency here. Um, but I, I wouldn't lay 
lay any great evidence behind that. It's just compilation over a number of years. From what you're saying, I think this might be slightly tangential to the overall thrust, but I think I'll have to say something about the kind of the 80s and now, because um, it seems to me that the more accurate parallel for the riots is not 81, but 85. Yeah. Because that was all the farm. And what they have in common is that somebody died before the riots. So I think that's actually quite an important point, because from the point of view of the community, that, I think, shapes their perspective as much as anything else. I think there's lots of other stuff, particularly about race and the dynamics of the community, which I think a lot of people wanted to load onto what happened in 2011, which I'm not sure explains it entirely. I think it's part of the, the explanation, but not the entirety of it. I think much less so than I think people would like to think, but also um, by contrast with 85, which I think was much more specifically about race being central factors, but to declare an interest, um, I run one of the main support bodies for the voluntary community sector in Harrogate. That's part of why I'm here, because I'm interested in what it is that you have to say. I've been there relatively recently, though I have a much longer history with the borough, and I think there are issues about the political leadership in Harrogate and the extent to which it has to use a kind of a, a manuscript buzzword vision. I think one of the things they've failed to articulate over the years is any kind of compelling picture that people in Tottenham can buy into. And if you combine that with, um, I think, a varying ability to deliver basic services and so on, you know, it doesn't have the greatest reputation in the world for competence. However, very recently, I think what, I suppose one of the things that gives me hope for change, I mean, I'm relatively new to the area in terms of my role. There is also a new chief executive on board. There is a relatively new leader of the council on board. There are a number of other senior people insofar as that matters. Because I think there is a danger with over-focusing on those who head hierarchies, rather than folks on the street. And I think there are a whole range of opinions about what goes on and what is possible. If there's one thing that I think has been missing from me that's happened is any real ability to convey to local people by the council Actually, we believe in you, we want to invest in you. Um, one of the things I've been doing ad nauseum in the time that I've been there is conveying both to the senior officers and also to the senior politicians that that's something that they really need to get across. Because it's not as if people don't care about Tottenham. They do. They care passionately. I have two daughters that live there and have lived there for the whole of their lives. So it's not a place that people want to escape from necessarily. I actually think what we have is an almost unique opportunity to try and do something that works for local people. Yeah. And I think there are relatively simple things that you could do in the short term, which will just slightly strengthen the belief that folks on the street have about the prospects for the area. I, I take your point entirely. I've worked for the council. I can see why it's been absent. I think there's been a whole scale escaping from Tottenham since 1965, which is one of the points that Lipton made. So the, the council are normal based in Wood Green, the NHS are based in Wood Green. They're about to um, do some interesting stuff with the local police presence in Tottenham. So no surprise that people feel that the local state is trying to escape from the place, whereas they're still there, as it were. But I think there are things that can be done to address that. I think, um, just a few, a couple of observations. I think that the point you make about the difference in the riots um, you know, 81, 85, and, and now. I think for those that are interested in, in riots is absolutely spot on. I think they were, they, this time around, they were of a different character. Um, just one about the chief, the new chief exec in Haringey. Um, I think it's fascinating that they've come from Barnet, 
Um, Barnett Haringey seems like sublime to ridiculous to me. Really, in yeah. political terms, it'd be yeah. really interesting to to see how that. Turns I think out. you have to distinguish the politics from an executive career to some extent. But I take the point. It's, it's you know you can imagine there's been no end of conversation about that. Moment, so. and, and the the third one, I was just wanted to ask you, what do you think? What what would be your top three things that should happen? Top three things. I think the point about invading, I would draw this, I think you've got to engage the community, but I think I would distinguish between everyday people that have an interest in their local area because that's what you do, and the organised community like the volunteer community sector, there's an overlap but they're not the same thing, so you have to, you have to engage both, and I think that's, that would be the fundamental process I would say. Um, I think there are relatively simple things. I won't go into the detail because it will be um, impolite. But there are ways in which the council could spend relatively small amounts of money to make a very powerful point about the capacity of local people to do for themselves. Um, and instead, I think what's happened is that people have gone for understandable, but I think, if, in my own opinion, misplaced projects, which might be interesting, but don't connect with the real need to kind of say to people, we care about you. Yeah. So I just think the council seemingly failed to do that. I don't think it's irredeemable, but that I think is a big challenge, which they could actually solve in a relatively straightforward way. Right. Other comments? sophisticated in its procurement policies and it could it could use its purchasing power a lot more effectively to generate local recruitments and local labor um, and we, we were I mean the level of our success was we got the country's leading expert in procurement to come in and talk with the council's procurement people and explain to them how they could use their muscle to help generate local jobs so there are some levers to pull Yeah, I was just going to lots of interesting observations, particularly from gentlemen here. Because um, if you take your point about the local authority, whether it's right or wrong, they have had 50 years, I think it's about 50 years, to, to do something, you know, which is one way of looking at it. 
But a couple of things, Chris, I wanted to, to, to sort of ask about. One is, perhaps the most important, is, um, is uh, I'm slightly struggling with the logic around, on the one hand, the sort of the fire sort of theory of riots, yeah? So there's this sort of random element which is about propensity to write and the spatial immediate distribution of those people. And on the other hand, trying to understand why, um, for example, people rioted in Croydon and indeed um, um, Tottenham, but why they didn't write in Brixton this time, for example, given that a lot of those ingredients that you put your finger on, which maybe so it's a debate around unemployment, hot summers, um, and a sense of injustice, however caused, didn't seem to precipitate a riot in Brixton. So why, why do you think that was? Well, the, the economic theories would be, and let's try and explain it in the way it was explained to me, but if you've got a thousand people in a group, um, if you have uh, an even distribution of the propensity to riot across that group, um, you'll get a, effectively a kind of domino effect which will run all the way across the group uh, and you'll have a thousand people rioting. If you have a discontinuity in that propensity to riot, and let's assume it's down at this end, uh, a domino will fall over and it won't knock the next one over. So you'll end up with just a small number. Um, but the discontinuity is um, a slightly different propensity to riot than the next one. And so in the context population of a thousand, you wouldn't notice it. It would be, you know, it would be within the noise of the statistic. So <coughs> that's why you get this kind of random outbreaks of, uh, of rioting. You, you'll never probably be able to predict exactly where they will happen. They will happen, even though the preconditions appear to be identical from one place to another. I mean, I was out um, in London on the um, first nights, the riots spread beyond Tottenham and then in Manchester the following night. Um, and, you know, it was, it was incredibly localised. So in my patch down in Bermondsey, um, the police came along our street trying to close all the businesses down at about five o'clock. Um, and all but one of the businesses said, get lost, we're staying open. Um, and absolutely nothing happened in the street. And about 600 metres away, um, you know, there were flying squad cars knocking six bells out of group of kids on, groups of kids on bikes that were, you know, throwing bricks and things. Um, and, you know, I think that, that's, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of practical reflection of the, of the randomness. And Manchester was very similar the following night. Uh, yeah, I mean, interesting. I think, Mark, I think I'm from Liverpool, for my sins. Um, I think Manchester rioted in the Mossad riots for in 81 as well, really. Uh, 81. I so, think Manchester. I'm just trying to understand why Brick, because as you see, you know, like you, I don't, well, I'm not, not Oxbridge, but I, I'm struggling as well with this theory in the sense that, um, in the sense that I can't see how it can on the one hand be random, and then on the other hand, you can one can put one's fingers on these causes. That's what I'm yeah, struggling I, with. I, um, I, I, would, I would recommend complexity theory to you. Mm -hmm. So it's the, the analogy would be, um, 
the weather forecasting one uh, back from the 50s where so well no I understand the I understand the construct of the argument the thing I'm struggling with is the idea uh, I guess the challenge is if one accepts the contrasty theory how you can with any confidence nail it to the root causes that you identified particularly given that as it was all highlighted a number of the protagonists in the right were not from the sorts of backgrounds that you identified. They were educated people, they were people with income, they were they were not from ethnic. That was a minority then. Can we just try an academic response if it's to the same point? But it wasn't on riots, so I'm not interested in the explanation of riots, so I wanted to get back onto it. Oh right, okay, we'll come back in a second. Um, the, the stats are very interesting. The proportion of people who were arrested and convicted from deprived areas was like 70 to 80 percent all over the country. So, it, you know, although there were posh people and the Daily Mail delighted in front paging them, you know, actually the, the kind of the base condition I think does does hold. Uh, I, I was just going to say, I think one of the main differences between 81 and 2011 is social media. So people didn't actually, often people didn't riot where they lived, they travelled to riot. Yeah. So it was the Blackberry messing thing that meant that people from Tottenham rioted and Tottenham just from Tottenham rioted and Tottenham. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. I don't think it was necessarily as connected to yeah. people's homes. It was I think that, I think that was a difference from the eighties. Yeah. Do you want to take us off the rise? Well, not if everybody wants to discuss <laughs> the riot theory. Um, I mean, sorry, the only reason I'm interested in it is because it then takes us, or doesn't take us, to think through, well, what sorts of responses may actually be effective at dealing with what we think are the causes of the riot. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's perhaps, the reason. Perhaps, it, depends, it, perhaps it depends if what you're trying, if your policy objective isn't to avoid riots or to do something about deprivation. Yes, I, I suppose what I'm saying is that uh, I'm not very interested in what policies should be pursued to avoid riots. I'm more interested in what policies should be pursued to try and do something about the conditions of poverty and misery that there are in places like if you lived in a neighbourhood where there was a propensity for rioting, okay, and you were going to be, or one of us was going to be a victim of that, then you would care about the propensity to riot. Actually, I would. I needed another bit of top and a little bit away, so I, I'm not uh, quite dangerous talking about it. But if one did, we would care about it. Sure. It is obviously a serious matter. It is obviously a serious matter. But the main aim of the other policy should be to deal with underlying problems. That's partly a matter of macroeconomic policy and partly a matter of rightness and sorts of things. There's not much that could be done about it at the moment. Quite right to talk about the lessons from 20, 30 years of regenerations being about the need to pursue the physical and social economic things together, and we are incredibly bad at doing that.
do something for five years or ten years. Those things are always aimed at our disbanding and the knowledge embodied in them, the contacts and the social embeddedness that they manage to develop any is dispersed and a new lot So the people like I guess you some say you've been working in there for a long time experience that just this succession of regimes. Managers, architects, engineers, professionals, community workers, youth workers, wherever they are. And that's bound to be an incredibly bad way to deal with it. So I want to really comment on that. Uh, just add that I'm not a resident, of it. I've, only been, I've only been there for 10 years, but I'm a resident in that constituency, albeit on the edge of it. And I experienced the London Borough of Harrogate, I'm not much involved in the local affairs, I'm busy elsewhere, but as a resident, I experienced it as a place which, where the street cleaning is fantastic. <laughs> the recycling services and the garbage are very sophisticated, punctual, professional, highly there is a glossy magazine that comes through the letterbox, which is mainly about prize giving and schools and how heroically various people performing their jobs and stuff. Never gives you the sense that important issues are confronting your locality, that decisions are being made anywhere, uh, that there are any tensions between Harangay and City Hall or it's not that you'd expect the council to tell you about that, but there's no clues to my shelters as a resident and thought, well, this is pretty dysfunctional local authority um, of priorities. Um, that's just too much attention. Okay. But I mean, this discontinuous dis 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 way of staffing and structuring regenerational projects. Yeah. I think um, I can remember, um, sorry, is that hand in the air, Tony? I'll come back, come back and say um, I can remember I, I can remember talking to Hesitan about this last year, I think. Um, and I think there's probably a view that City Challenge was the programme uh, that represented the high point of regeneration practice. Um, and that, that did have, um, if you like, specialist groups of people they were based in the neighbourhoods in which they were working. Um, they were salaried, but their main advantage was they were single-minded and they had quite a number of the funding streams or um, the, the powers brought together. Now, they were far from perfect. They had uh, a fixed end date. Uh, and that loss of skill has, has, has been huge and it's part of the reason why regeneration practice hasn't progressed in the UK. Um, and they also, uh, while they were relatively community engaged, they did struggle with that kind of transition of power and resources to the community as they phased themselves out. So I think I'm quite a fan of the single-minded body um, because I think local authorities really struggle with uh, with these kinds of challenges. 
Um, so I absolutely recognise your your point about loss of skills and, and, and lack of uh, really true community engagement in most of um, most of the regeneration uh, programmes that we've had. Come on, Tony, you want to get in? Well, that was in response to a remark you made earlier about the community and Michael's remark about the endless initiatives. I mean, the truth is that since, you know, let's start with 1945, um, you know, it's been a profound industrial change, of course, in London and Britain, but also uh, an ever greater level of uh, central control over public resources. So 95% of all the taxes paid in England are collected by central government, and areas like Tottenham need substantial levels of redistribution to them through national mechanisms. In such a centralized system, chances are you'll get top-down government, and lo and behold, we do. Point was made about Tottenham, which until 1965 had its own municipal government. It's now inside the London Borough of Haringey, and you can be almost certain that at some point in the future there'll be a reform of the London government to fewer, not more, boroughs. Ken Livingston proposed five, and there have been one that ran, as it were, from just off from here, actually, from this building to the London border, in which Haringey would have found itself. So the direction of change is to much bigger units, top-down money, and the only way in such a system that you get any purchase on public resources is through convincing the people up. So you'd have to change. British state to alter this, because that's the way resources flow. It's sad but true. I'm not sure the Department of the local government thinks it has much responsibility in London any longer. And I think they think they've handed over that responsibility to City Hall with the abolition of the London Development Agency and all the money that went with it. So I think those who look to government for solutions here look look longingly but unlikely. There are no city deals in London. They're all outside London. So my question is this. I take the point about the need for more community. Community, as we said, people who live there, community organisations. But I'm interested to know how you imagine empowering people to deal with the centralised state I've just described. Um, Given it is centralised. Yeah, this if you is really want to get power, you have to see the Prime Minister or the Permanent Secretary of the Department of Communities and Local Government or the Mayor. I feel how, how is the local community going to handle that? I feel a debate about big society coming on. That's um, it. That's gone. That's Okay, well, our, our Planning Minister has, um, has kindly offered to donate... Um, 25% of community infrastructure levy receipts to local communities who make neighbourhood plans. Um, honestly, Chris, in the scale of the resources of anywhere in London, these are far things in the scale of the, the money that goes into Tottenham is a very large sum, a very, very large sum indeed. And it rains in on Tottenham like asteroids on the surface of the yeah. No, I, I agree with you, Tony. And so, I, the I, question, so the idea that SIL or anything in SIL could make any difference is for the birds. It's too mm -hmm. tiny. There won't be much SIL paid in Tottenham. 
Well, it might be in the West End. Be in the no, no, I'm asking them for the mechanism. Yeah. Other than, uh, I take, I'm a neo-colloquialist, but what would the mechanism be allowing the community and community organisations to have any purchase in a system as centralised as I just described it? Yeah. So if you, so still as an example, that if you have um, community organisation, which is, uh, and I, I agree with you politically about big society with the current government, but I do wonder whether other parties will pick up the, uh, the fundamentals of big society post, post the next election. But what I was um, trying to suggest was if you've got automatic transfer of resources to organised groups at a very local level, and I'm kind of a fan of parishing, as I know um, Eric Pickles is, um, you know, you, you can imagine the possibility of creating smaller units of government which do get resources transferred, not at political whim, but in relation to, for example, deprivation indices or something like that. But that's how the money gets to Tottenham now. It's a huge sum of money. It's not that there isn't a lot of money in Tottenham in the state. It's just it's in the hands of the state. And that and that's Michael's that's that's the link to Michael's point really about um, you know these these groups of single focus people and community budgeting and you know if you if you can bring that money together with local governments governments and local in the sense of neighbourhood can you not cause create change? Well, not so far in London since 1945. I'm, I'm just but I don't think it's been tried, is it, Well, but, but I'm trying to think of uh, what the mechanism looked like, though, at the <coughs> top of this big area, 115,000 people in Tottenham. You know, it was a large authority before 1965. So, but, but there's a debate there, isn't there, as to whether is Tottenham the right geographic scale? Because I personally doubt that it is. So, but then you're left with the question of what would the right scale be? And I'm still intrigued by what the mechanism might be, given that it's got to pass muster with Margaret Park, because it's going to be spending millions and millions and millions of pounds of public money. So it's got to be representative in a way that makes sense to those at the top. Is this a... Yeah, I yeah, suppose keep going. From that. I was just wondering whether, what, whether you think any of the other boroughs... If you're going to address the questions to Tony rather than me, it would take pressure off massively. <laughs> Split differently with Tottenham and Croydon getting uh, the biggest amounts and some of the other riot hotspots getting smaller amounts. Um, Croydon moved a bit quicker than Tottenham, um, but essentially it focused its money in, a, in quite a similar way on kind of public realm, landscape kind of projects. 
Um, you know, there was some money there. They had some existing plans which were unfunded. They put the two together and, and kind of tried to get on. Um, the, the amounts of money, as attended rightly says, the amounts of money involved are so small compared with the amounts needed to make a make a dent in the underlying problem um, that you know, it disappears and you don't really don't really notice it. Can anyone anyone help me out with a response that would satisfy Mr. Travers? Um, and if not, we'll have to yeah, agree that he's right. I mean, it's interesting. Tony mentioned Margaret Hodge, and then she was leader at the time. But Islington was a, a, a reasonably uh, close local authority that tried neighbourhood management. Uh, I think, and uh, Tower Hamlets, and they gave up because it was too expensive. And I think you could argue that areas like Bow and um, get the others, but you know, they're actually quite big. I mean, I, I agree with part of your premise as you mentioned. Is that you know, Tottenham is a big area. And people think of places like Bruce Grove, Cumberland Park, you know, their real locality. But crikey, if you're talking about governments of that scale, I mean, it's mighty expensive, unless it's a completely different model, and you are talking about, you know, community budgeting. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that just seems a big shift from where we are now. Just one other thing, I mean, you know, it's sad to say, but, but you know, they're, they're, uh, because it took so much... Um, you know, bloodshed and, and the death of one person. But in the, in the period I've been working in this area, um, the Tottenham Hale system, the 40 million scheme, arguably over for years is now happening. You know, if you go past here and live Eden, you'll know it's happening. Uh, the rail link from Stratford to Tottenham, which you mentioned, isn't actually there, but that's a commitment of 50 million from government plus another 25, 28 million, we think, from Boris. You know, it's 80 million. Now, whether this would have happened without the riot, I really would question, um, because I can tell you on a couple of those schemes, myself and uh, quite a few other colleagues have really worked hard on it, and you know we weren't getting anywhere. Now they're, you know, they are quite small in the scale of things, but compared to what Tottenham's had previously, they are quite big. And the only other thing I'd ask again as a question is, how much significance was there in Spurs locking in that area? Because I think there's a lot of, you know, um, good sense of what you're saying. That community, uh, as I say, I'm not a community worker, feels done to and withdrawn from. And so Tottenham Spurs locating there would feel to me like a big statement of commitment in a community, which, again, would that happen without the rights? I'm not sure. But they're the sort of things where I think perhaps the state could be a bit more kind of active and uh, maybe ingenious in getting that kind of sign of commitment and I don't try to say I'm in the local council. Okay, we're, we're fast running out of time but I, I would really like to address the Spurs question so I'll try and do it in a minute and a half. Um, so there's a compulsory purchase inquiry starting tomorrow and I'll name Michael as the master. I think a football club is the last thing you want in the neighbourhood if you want to regenerate it. Um, particularly one that is so um, aggressively anti-community and you know, they're trying to get rid of local jobs at the moment rather than, than create them. Um, and I also find the... So <coughs> London government did a deal with Spurs, probably an illegal deal, um, and that will, that will come out, um, illegal in state aid terms. Um, and I think it's uh, it's kind of a symptom of what's gone wrong in Tottenham that 
uh, London government feels it can do those kind of things. Um, and I think it's kind of, it's probably got that one wrong. But anyway, anyone else that's got any other views as we finish? It would have been very interesting if Harrogate councillors, in their wisdom, had thought to uh, support the Lord's Corner scheme in the state of the developers, because that would be saying we're going to build an economy on what we've got rather than hope to get a lot of brand new multiple regional shops. Last words, thoughts? Tony, do you want to ask Chris, my question is why is public be neglected for so long? Because actually the story here is of neglect. Not enough for our Brixton, Brixton, well, I did it, got a challenge. What's my got that big housing development? Human. Human. Yeah. seems it is a problem which is bigger than the local authority, which was always the argument of all these so-called special agencies. Um, but it doesn't seem to be, it, it's there, just out on a limb, and um, nobody cares for it, so that people would feel. Sounds right to me. So why is that being the local people care for it, but it's the it's Tony's point about the people with the money don't yeah, care yeah, about those it. Who've got but then, Chris, just on the money, I think you mentioned that underfunding, where there were significant levels of deprivation, was another root cause of rioting. Um, I mean, the numbers, according to Tony's analysis in the report, are that Tottenham receives, and correct me if I'm wrong, but guesstimated per capita, it's around 15,000, as high as 17 to 18,000, depending on treat pensions, against the London average of 10,000. So, you know. At one level, we're kind of potentially prescribing more of the same in an upside-down sort of way. Maybe upside-down is the right way to put it, actually. Um, you know, 60% of the local economy is probably public sector. We're talking about public sector transfers of consumption, whatever. Third higher than the average in London. Is, is, is more of the same going change? I think you do have to make the distinction between Money which is there, public money which is there to change things, and money, public money which is there to keep things as they are. And I think virtually all that money is is benefit money in one sort or another, which is broadly keeping things as they are. It's not change money. The change money stops in 09. But I do think actually, one of the things I've struggled with working looking at, I mean, if you look at the, the area in and around the Broadwater Farm, very substantial investments that you can go to like architecture, mm -hmm. sort of archaeology, you can go around seeing all the investments since 1975 in by time and the different government initiatives. One of the most beautiful schools I've ever seen, a beautiful medical health centre, rather nice FB and advanced skills centre, all on the farm itself. However, what the area probably needs is lots of efforts to find the people who live there opportunities to get jobs. There's lots and lots and lots and lots of public money being spent on investment in capital. But relatively little, as far as I can see, till recently, to try to see whether the young people in particular who live there get jobs. Now that's, you know, I say it is
most banal, but the actually so the scale of it, it's not the amount of money, it's the way the money is used. In this sense, we can agree. The question of how, so I wasn't being as aggressive as the question sounded, the question of how people get a share of the money to use how they want is one that seems to me befuddles all governments at all the time. But there's no shortage of money, honestly. I mean, it's just the way it's used that's the problem. That seems a wonderful note on which to finish. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, we'll Michael Ward, who's a research fellow at the Smith Institute, and he will be talking about localism in London.